great place to worship. If you can't worship here, you're dead. Okay, that's all there is to it. You just, you got nothing. That, that's, it's as simple as that. Now, I'm the prop guy. I usually have a prop. Today, if I could have had a, tr- a prop, I would have had a great big tomb here with a casket and stuff. I thought that might be a little overkill. Thank you. Thank you, all of those who got that one. But uh, you might be able to envision this, John chapter 11. You might want to turn in that white page, or if you have another version of the Bible with you on your cell phone, you might actually want to silence your cell phone right now. might be a good time to do that. If you brought your pad, whatever you've got, uh, look up John chapter 11. We have been walking along all summer trying to learn about the true identity of Jesus. I believe, and, and many of us do, who know something of Jesus, that his identity has been hijacked. And we're trying to say, what is the true identity? If you're going to learn it, this book, John, will tell you, because that was John's purpose. We're going to get to that in a little bit here as we study along. We've plugged along all the way from the beginning in John chapter 1 with the claims of Christ to be God. And then we walked all the way through 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and now we're, here we are at 11. And uh, we're going to study here. So what I want you to do, keep the Bible handy because we're going to keep referring back to it as we go along. It's not going to be a one read and then talk. It's going to be read and check, read and check. Here we go. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. And in a few minutes, Jesus is going to say, for your sake, I am glad that he died. Think about that for a second. Man's sick, and in just a second or two, Jesus is going to express, it is in your best interest if he dies. We'll get there. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That is a preview of chapter 12. This story is actually told in in another chapter. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Stop here for a second with me. Lord, the one you love is sick. Now they had to make a decision to do this. They had to get some kind of a transport system. They didn't text him. You realize Jesus didn't have a cell phone. You're right. If he would have, I don't know if he'd had AT&T or Verizon. I don't know. But uh, Jesus did not have that ability. He also didn't just intuit it through the Holy Spirit uh, phone lines. They sent a message to him and said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Let me just stop there and say, is this maybe one of the most perfect prayers ever? This is not demanding. This is not setting down a whole bunch of stakes in the ground. This is not claiming. This is not going on and on. This is, Lord, you love our brother. We know that. We trust you. And he's sick. Not just sick like he's got a cold, but he's sick unto death. And they sent that. Ask yourself, what's your approach to Jesus? When you bring requests to him, ask yourself, reflect on this for a moment. Is it this simple? Do you trust him with the outcome? Aren't we glad they trusted him with the outcome? So, move on. Verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And I want to stop right there for a moment. 
This has been a bell that John has rung all the way along, all the way along, to say Jesus came to represent God in the fullness for us. Who do you believe Jesus is? That is John's, of the two big questions, if you ask yourself this one, this is a major crux of this entire story of this gospel. Who do you think Jesus is? He is telling story after story after story, event after incident to say, Jesus brought the fullness of God's glory to us, incident after incident. In the chapter just prior to this, Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees and to his disciples and all those listening, I am the good shepherd. I'm the gate that the sheep enter through. I, here's the single greatest claim he ever made to his divinity. I and the Father are one. And immediately, the Jewish leaders picked up stones to kill him. They knew what he just said. He had been making that claim all along. And then he just really clarified it just a couple of sentences before this in this story as John tells it. I and the Father are one. All summer, we have looked. Jesus claimed power over light, creation, the law, bringing breath and the cleansing of sins, racial and traditional complications, eternal judgment, the priesthood, physical health, spiritual sight, and now actually resurrection and life itself. And Jesus says, is there any part of God that I'm missing? What would I be missing? What's not here? We're separate. He clearly identified and addressed the Father. Clearly. But we're the same. It is a great question to ask. What does Jesus believe about himself? What did they believe? And what do you believe? Verse 5, moving along. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Has that been mentioned before? Yes. Did John forget that he wrote it down? No. These are beloved people to Jesus. This is an important part of this, next part of this. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he got on the next plane. Is that what it says? He immediately said, guys, we got to go. I love these people. It says he stayed right where he was for two days. Does that seem counterintuitive to you? Does that seem like, wait a second, I thought Jesus clearly loved. John did not put that sentence in front of that by accident. These were people, not just some passing, oh, I don't care really what happens with those guys, I don't know. These were beloved ones of Jesus. And Jesus sat still for two days. This is a critical piece. Critical piece of the identity of Jesus. Because if you think Jesus is one who is supposed to, on our terms, fulfill everything and do things the way that we think they should be done, you're not understanding the big picture. But if you also interpret lack of motion on God's part from your perception, if you interpret that as a lack of love on his part, you're misunderstanding. Jesus clearly illustrated this for us. He loved 
all of these people in the equation, and Jesus sat there and waited. How long do you think he would have been willing to wait? I think he would have waited six months if that's what it took for Lazarus to die. For your sake, I am glad that Lazarus is going to die. Have you put that together in this? That's Jesus' perspective. I love you deeply, but for your sake, for the sake of all of us, ladies and gentlemen, for your sake, so you can hear this story today. He said, I am glad that he's going to die. I'm going to sit here and wait till death happens. Have you connected the fact that death is not an evil that is exacted against us? Loss, grief, sorrow, disappointment, disillusionment, all of the things that come with it. Despair, loss of a, of a loved one, of a partner, of a mate, of someone who you have invested your entire life in. It is not an evil exacted against us. Arthur Pink, an old-time preacher, made this great statement. He said, do not interpret God's heart by his hand. Do not interpret the heart of God by what he does with his hand. Because your perspective, your information, your understanding will be limited. And you're likely to misunderstand what God is about. It is definitely not a lack of love. Definitely not. He loved this family. He will let us get to the very end of our rope. Do you think this is the only time in history that God waited a couple days? Unlikely. More likely, God is in the pattern of doing what he knows will be in our best interest. We'll finish the sentence, for your sake, I'm glad that Lazarus will die. We'll finish that in a second. You'll understand a little bit more what God is about. Verse 7. So he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. By short while, they mean about 15 minutes ago. I mean, this is very recent history. They heard what you said about you and the Father are one, and they were intent to kill you. You are a hunted, wanted man. Are you really going to go back? Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? Well, it depends on the solstice and all that stuff, but we'll go there later. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see this world's light. And when a person walks at night, then they stumble, for they have no light. He says, folks, we're not going to sneak around here and do some kind of subversive. I am not a Navy SEAL sent from God. I'm putting it right out there. And then check this. If you if you go down to verse 16, in response to that sentence, Thomas, also called Didymus, says to the rest of the disciples, let's go. And if we have to die with him, we'll die with him. I want to make a couple of observations right there. First of all, given the same set of circumstances, 
If you're a leader in a religious community, you're an elder in your church, you're someone who's making decisions about what do we do with people that are troublemakers, if you were the leader in this time, you would have drawn the exact same conclusion about Jesus, likely, that most of them did. Some of them believed. We know that. We know Nicodemus believed. We know others believed, even in the Sanhedrin. But at the end of this chapter, we get a fascinating perspective. As they discuss through, Jesus needs to die for the good of the nation in relationship to the Romans. And our justification for killing him is blasphemy because he has claimed to be God. They knew what he said. And ladies and gentlemen, you likely would have done the same thing. Don't vilify the Pharisees automatically and say, well, I wouldn't have done that. And second of all, the guy I hear vilified often is poor Thomas. Because we get down a couple of chapters in 20, and Jesus shows up after his resurrection. And Thomas says, boy, unless I see some evidence, something physical, something that I can actually attest to, I'm not going to believe the story that he came back out of the grave. That doesn't make sense. It's not rational. It's not good reasoning. And Jesus comes up to him, and instead of saying to him, Thomas, you moron, or treating Thomas with disrespect, Jesus says to him, Thomas, here's evidence. Believe. Believe. Ladies and gentlemen, Thomas was the leader out front to say, let's go die with him. He was committed. Don't vilify the Pharisees and say, well, there's... They were just horrible, rotten, terrible people, and I would have never acted like that. And definitely don't think you wouldn't have acted like Thomas, because the chances are you'd have said, I need some evidence too. I don't know if I have as much courage as Thomas exhibits here. Let's keep moving on. He says, for your sake, Lazarus is going to die. Let's see what he says here. After he said this, Jesus went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. And the disciples reply, Lord, if he sleeps, that's a good thing. We know we're, we're a medical, you know, we're scientists. We're, we know if sleep is a good thing, that'll help him heal. And Jesus says, well, he'd been speaking of his death and the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he has to tell them plainly, as he would have had to tell us, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad. Lazarus is dead, for your sake, I am glad. Why? I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. If you track this thing all the way through, the story of Jesus, starting back in John 1, as John starts to explain here he was. And here's incident after incident. The wedding at Cana, the, the different circumstances, the woman in Samaria, the, the time when he's in the temple and he says in front of those huge burning pillars of light, I am the light of the world. And all of his claims as there's moving along. First of all, Jesus was God here. Second of all, his purpose is to grow faith in that truth. That is why he's here. If it takes the death of our closest people 
to accomplish that, God will accomplish that on his terms. That is not fun to hear, but don't you think it's good to know there's purpose? Loss, whatever your circumstances are, you've lost a job, you're like, God, where are you? I am trying to grow your faith. I'm glad you lost your job so that you may believe. But, but Lord, you know, I just lost my spouse. I've been married to that person forever. I don't even know what life will look like. Jesus says, I'm glad that he or she died so that you may believe. But Lord, I, you know, what, what's going on? I just found out I've got cancer. This is going to be horrific. I'm glad that you've got cancer so that you may believe. That's the point. It is truly the point. Faith in what God is doing in spite of the circumstances was the point. And the ultimate horror was when Jesus himself was crucified. And they all lost everything they thought they knew. And he said, I am glad it will be better for you that I'm gone so that you may believe. And this bell starts to ring here, folks, and every single writer in the New Testament picks up on it, and it moves forward. This is the point. Belief, faith. There's a root word in the Greek, pytho, that that really says, and and then other words came off of it. Faith, belief, trust. They, They have to do with being convinced, persuaded, not of something that's not true, but of something that is true but it's hard to grasp and get through the circumstances to understand. Faith is not simple on that matter. It's hard to get to. Jesus knew that. But he said, this is why. And it starts a journey. Peter to Cornelius in Acts 10. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. Paul to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not jump up and down, do some you know, religious activities. This is what you need. Faith. Paul to the Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power to all who believe. It is a righteousness that comes by faith. Right out of the gate in Romans chapter 1. Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Paul to the Galatians in two, a man's not justified by observing the law. They had been doing that all along for generations, for centuries. But he's justified by believing in Jesus Christ. Paul to the Ephesians in two, by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Paul to the Philippians in chapter three, not having a righteousness of my own, but I have a righteousness that is by faith. For the just shall live by faith. Paul the Colossi in one. We have heard around the world of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that's a result of that faith. Belief. Paul to the Thessalonians. We remember your work produced by your faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. You've got faith, hope, love. Faith is the premise for all of these. It's the action verb that starts all of this. Paul to Timothy in one, the goal is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. 
is what this takes. Paul to Titus in one. We're preaching faith and knowledge, resting on the hope of eternal life, which God promised before the beginning of time. Paul to Philemon. Be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have full understanding of what we have in Christ. Oh, faith and understanding are hooked together. Really? Yes. Guys, I am glad that Lazarus is dead so that you may believe. You will understand as well. The writer of the Hebrews, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, all the way through chapter 11, right? Faith. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the maturer, the perfecter of our faith. Now, there's an interesting thing. So faith isn't just one thing that you have. Like I've got this. What have I got in my pocket here? Okay, I've got a mint. (laughs) I've got a mint. Faith is not like this mint. The mint is limited. It's one thing. I've got it. Okay, great. Faith grows. It matures. It blossoms. It moves. James, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And then he goes on to say, faith without actions doesn't really mean anything, does it? But faith is the premise. Peter, interesting. Your sufferings have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. Genuine faith. Though you don't see Jesus now, you believe, you're filled with joy, you're receiving the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. And John in 1 John, his other, one of his other smaller books, the victory that overcomes the world is faith. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus' point is, I'm coming representing the truth of God. Here it is, and everything I'm doing is to grow your faith. Even if someone has to die to accomplish it. Even if that's what it takes. It's moving. It's active. So, on his arrival, verse 17, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come. So there's a bunch of people now. There have been two other times in Luke and Mark that Jesus has healed He's healed the widow of Nain's son, and he's healed the daughter of Jairus. But in this case, we've got a crowd gathered, very famous people. Martha comes out, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know even now, whatever you ask, God will give you. Amazing faith. Do you think Jesus is satisfied with that amount of faith? No. Is it good? You bet. Is it... A true decision? Is it sincere? You bet. Is it enough? No. There's more capacity that can be grown in her faith. And Jesus is about to get get to work on that. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day, she says. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now this is something that she's like, what? We haven't heard this yet. I am life itself. That takes faith to believe. That takes faith that resurrection from death is going to be a critical part of what's going to happen here. 
do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who's come to the world. And in a couple of verses later, when Mary finally comes over to see him, she says the exact same thing that Martha says. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And now, if you're wondering how God feels, you get a little bit of insight right here. Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where is he? Come and see, they said. Jesus wept. Not a crocodile tear. He wept. He felt what they felt. Then the Jews said, see, he loved him. They knew, they interpreted this as being profound emotion. And some said, well, couldn't he have kept this guy from dying? I mean, he saved the blind guy, he kept, he healed the blind guy. What's the deal here? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. If you think for a minute, in this process, this is just some kind of a whimsical thing of God that he doesn't care about you, he's forgotten you, as you go through your loss, through your pain, through your grief, through your suffering, if you think he just doesn't give a rip, that's also something that is a hijack of Jesus' true identity. He cared deeply. What all was tied up in this? We don't know. Jesus was a few days from his own death and separation from his father and having to carry the entire weight of the sin of the world on his back. He may be looking at that tomb going, oh man, this is going to hurt. It may be wrapped up in this. It may be that he sees and feels all the weight of the loss and the grief of all the people in all humanity. I don't know what he's feeling. But the Greek here has got so much profound emotion in it. Understand this for sure. Jesus has not left you alone in your place as he builds your faith. He has not left you there alone by yourself. He feels it. He cares, but he knows this is critical. He knows. Take away the stone, he says. But Lord, Martha, who's a practical thinker, says, he's going to stink. He's been in there for four days. Jesus said, didn't I tell you, you believe that you'll see the glory of God? And there it is. Both of these main pillars of what Jesus came to say and to do. Belief and the glory of God. Wrapped up in what he came to do. John actually catches this back up in chapter 20 and, and repeats it. He says, I wrote this book to you so that you could believe in the Son of God. Because that's who he was. The Messiah. The Son of God. If we had told this story, because then it goes on, and you know, he, takes, he calls Lazarus out, and they take the, the wrappings off. It's almost like tertiary to the story, the fact that Lazarus got up and walked out. Because Jesus said, we're going to tell you this story, and I'm going to identify for you the fact that God has given me the power of life and death. And I'm going to ask you to believe I am who I say that I am. And be willing to let me grow your capacity for faith along a long journey. 
If we had written the story, what would we have done? We'd have, the whole focus of the story would have been on Lazarus. We'd have had him on the Today Show and on Oprah and the 2020, and he'd have been in all the magazines as we interviewed to say, Lazarus, what happened when you died? What did you experience? Did it hurt? Was there a light? Were there people there? Do you get to fly fish in heaven? You know, we'd have asked him all those questions. Well, all the focus would have been on Lazarus. John writes this story, and all the focus is on Jesus. The story here is about Jesus. It's not about Lazarus. Lazarus, if you could have talked to him, probably would have said, what a blessing and an amazing thing that Jesus wrote me into his story. So I ask you today, in these stories, as you hear about this, you've got two things. What do you believe about Jesus' identity? Not all of the details and the splitting of the hairs and all of What do you believe about who he was? That's step one. Step two, what do you believe about your circumstances that you have signed up to allow him to continue to grow your faith over a lifelong journey, even if it costs you people? Are you signed up for that? The first step is a simple beginning. Anyone can decide. And you can decide based on the evidence that we've got from these eyewitnesses. The second step to sign up for growth of faith is mature. It's hard. Where are you? Those who are going to serve communion, if you would come down right now. We're going to transition into a time where we're going to have communion. Those who are going to pray with others, if you'd make yourself available down here. And if the band would come back up. This encounter, as they watch Jesus have a man walk out of his tomb after he described what was going on. How do you respond to that? What's your heart saying right now? We're going to enter into a time of communion. Jim, would you like to... Thank you, Mark. Mark has asked some very profound questions. What is, uh, what is going on in your life that is causing you to reflect on who the Lord is? Sometimes that brings a little bit of anger. I've been there. Sometimes it, it brings questioning. I've been there. Sometimes it brings doubt. I've been there, as I suspect all of you have at one point or another. But this is a chance. We're going to invite you down in just a moment to receive communion. This is a chance to take some time and explore that. Where are you with the Lord Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you on that journey? Are you not sure? Do you want to know who Jesus is? Do you feel him whispering in the background? Do you feel him tapping on your shoulder? Quietly calling your name? I've been there. When you come down, you have the opportunity to receive communion. But you'll also have the opportunity to pray with people. All those that are up here that are praying with people, just raise your hands so that you can see.
who they are. Mark's here. Mark would love to pray. If you want to talk about Jesus, I know Mark. He wants to talk about Jesus. Right, Mark? That's right. If, uh, if Spanish is your preferred language, Hector is over here. He loves to pray in Spanish. So perhaps, uh, perhaps you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, uh, whether you believe in him or not. You just want to talk. You're on that journey. You're growing deeper in your faith. Perhaps you want to share a praise. You just got something. You just got to tell somebody. I love it when that happens, when people come down and say, I just got to tell you what God has done. Perhaps, uh, perhaps you have a need that we can help you with. We'd love to hear about it. So with the way we're going to set up, come on out, communion workers, come on out. Is you can come on down and you can receive communion. And then there'll be people right here to pray with. You know, communion is a wonderful thing. As a Christian, we believe, I believe, and as Christians in our church, we believe that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus says, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, held up the bread, and he said, this bread uh, represents my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what it reminds us of, the broken body of Christ. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Every time you eat and drink the bread and the cup, you proclaim my death until I come back. And as Christians, we are, we are proclaiming his death. And yes, we are celebrating his death because of what it means for us. So we'd like you to come down now and receive communion and take some time and pray with us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for this opportunity just to pause in a busy week together as a community and to celebrate your son. Jesus, thank you for the work that you did on the cross, for the sacrifice, for your willingness to die for us. It is your, your name that we pray. Amen. So come and receive communion.